Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute also hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I am Ryan Aris, and I'm joined, as always, by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. Welcome back, guys. Good to be back. Yeah, nice to be here. Mm-hmm. So as we uh, left off last week, uh, there were many things unsaid on this, uh, this broad question of the kingdom of God, uh, the matter of theonomy, and the, uh, the application of the, the law of God as revealed in Scripture to society. So we uh, we left that as a part one, and mm-hmm. we pledged to get back to you uh, on this week. So that's what we're going to do uh, this time around. Mm-hmm. Se- several of you have also uh, emailed us over the mm-hmm. course of this past week. Uh, thanks for writing those questions and comments in. We do read them, we do appreciate them, and we're going to address them, some of them, uh, here and now today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pile of emails, all very positive, very encouraging. We were mm-hmm. blessed to receive them. Yeah, absolutely. Nate, do you have any announcements before we kick off? Well, yeah, I I, uh, I would just uh, throw out another reminder uh, that our Mission of God conference is approaching very quickly, uh, Saturday, May 21st. And as I've mentioned, this year we're discussing utopianism. Mm-hmm. It's a topic on most people's minds uh, with everything happening around us in, in culture. But uh, we're going to be discussing both how to recognize utopianism and how to respond to it with the truth of Scripture. And uh, our speakers for this year's conference, uh, they include Andre Schutten. He's our fellow for law and civil discourse. Uh, Graham Leach, our fellow for biblical economics. And I think, Joe, you might say a few words as well, won't you? It's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I wonder if you could, could you share a little bit about what, you, uh, what you'll be speaking about at the conference. Yeah, I'll be picking up on themes from my new book, uh, Ruler of Kings, Toward a Christian Vision of Government, and in particular, this uh, the, the contest that we are in, and actually we could say Western culture mm. has been in for a very, very long time, um, ever since the, the Greeks uh, offered their uh, polis, their, their political utopias, uh, mm. and uh, sought to make everything subservient to the the idea of the body politic. Mm. Um, and uh, the various utopian ideals and ideas that have, that, uh, that have grown out, out of that and been in contest with a, a Hebraic uh, biblical view mm. of um, uh, the kingdom of God. So, of course, you can go right back to the Tower of Babel, really, mm. to see the beginnings of the first utopian project. Yeah. So I'll be talking about the historic struggle uh, between the kingdom of God and humanistic utopias mm. uh, that ape or pretend to be or try and copy badly the mm. biblical vision of the of the kingdom of God under right. the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, well, we're really looking forward to that conference around here. And uh, if you're interested in attending, you can buy tickets uh, on our website at EzraInstitute.com. And uh, just quickly, a second reminder, our H... Evan Runner International Academy. That's coming up soon as well in June from the 5th to the 15th in Golden, British Columbia. And uh, right now there are only a limited number of spots available. We've uh, been pleased to see the program fill up quickly. And uh, for the Academy this year, we've got Joe, you're speaking, uh, Andrew Sandlin, 
uh, Brian Matson, Pastor Tim Stevens, Dr. Ted Fenske, Andre Schutten, Jenny Boot, and Pastor Jason Hagen. So great lineup of speakers there who, of course, be on site throughout the program. And uh, as I said, just a limited number of spots left. Uh, so apply as soon as possible mm-hmm. if you'd like to be part of this year's Academy. Yeah, should be good. Thanks, mm-hmm. Nate. So to, uh, to return to the, the topic at hand, uh, the question that, uh, that came up and that we spent some time dealing with last week is the question of the, uh, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness uh, and the, uh, the assertion on, uh, on one side that the kingdoms of the world uh, actually belong to the devil. And you spent some time responding to that, but Joe, there's more to be said, and I know that you've, uh, you've been doing, doing some reading on that subject, so why don't we start there, this question of the kingdoms of this world, the God of this world, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the role and person of who the devil is and his, his domain. Well, there were two sort of um, primary things that, as you say, we were sort of tackling last week mm-hmm. that are um, related issues. Um, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, and this uh, this counter challenge of of Satan, of course, mm-hmm. and uh, the the issue of um, theonomy, which uh, simply means um, God's law. Mm. And uh, we pointed out that um, it's interesting how both of these ideas, the kingdom or the reign of God, um, have and and theonomy or the law of God have taken on a sort of negative connotation, and mm-hmm. we we pointed out how um, it's not uncommon now for these terms to be used in an almost pejorative right. sense. Mm-hmm. So theonomy, oh, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, God's law that must be because that word has taken on a kind of negative connotation. In the mm-hmm. same way, uh, kingdom. When you talk about the kingdom, the rule, and the reign of God, and they're related, of course, because a king has a domain. Uh, he has a, a jurisdiction, and every king has a law, the law of the king, or uh, the, uh, the, the, the notion that under Christ's authority and lordship, there would be a law to govern. And um, you've got this, uh, this sort of pejorative term, uh, dominionist. If you use the term Christ dominion, you're a mm-hmm. dominionist. Mm-hmm. So you have these, they've become sort of pejorative labels, and so we were cautioning people last week not to fall into this sort of uh, pejorative misuse of the of the terms. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, we were responding last week to um, a sermon in which, um, as Ryan said, uh, someone rang the doorbell, so we 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 answered. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in which an Ontario pastor um, uh, started tackling various things in the name of responding to theonomy and the the idea of the kingdom of God. And uh, we did our podcast. And actually, since then, we have had a, a kind letter from this um, this pastor, which I think is a, is a positive, mm-hmm. with That's some great. comments and some questions. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we'll uh, we'll be interacting with him via email a little bit as well. And we'll try and um, well, we'll look to try and shape his understanding a little bit and and bring a corrective to some of the areas where we think that he's misunderstood the issues. So. Sometimes when you do respond directly to something, it has the positive outcome that it actually does bring about a meaningful conversation. Right. Um, it's a pity that it didn't happen first, mm-hmm. uh, but it is going to happen now, and, and I think that's uh, that, that's a bit that's a big plus. Mm-hmm. So, Perfect. 
uh, this whole this whole thing about uh, one of the things that comes up, and and it came up about the temptation of Jesus is this claim that Satan makes to be able to give Christ all the kingdoms um, of the world, and um, one of the challenges, of course, we have in um, understanding Scripture is making sure that uh, uh, you know. Uh, the, the, when we're reading the scriptures, we're, we're reading it in context. And we did try mm. to point that out last week, that it's important that we, we first of all, we're interpreting the Bible with the Bible, and of course, the immediate context matters. And the word uh, world, there's two primary words that um, the New Testament uses for, for world, cosmos, uh, which should be familiar to all of us, the, the whole idea of cosmos, that comes right out of the Greek, and it, it means a, a system or ordered system. can mean a kind of adornment, but basically it's a system of order, um, and uh, it has a, has a more of a sort of spatial connotation to it. And then there's aeon, from which we get the English term eon, and, or an age. The Bible usually translates that as an age, sometimes a world, but, but um, age as well. Uh, age is actually better because it concern, concerns time, like a, um, a uh, an undefined time period, typically. And again, it has an ethical uh, undercurrent. So it's an, the ethical current of human affairs in a particular period. Mm. Um, and uh, cosmos, but both of these words, interestingly enough, uh, because of the, the use of cosmos, especially by the Apostle John, Paul uses it sometimes as well, but it's mainly the Apostle John, and the word aeon, or eon, age, take on a largely negative tone in the Bible. So how you understand the word, though, cosmos, world, is dependent on the immediate context. So mm -hmm. when John, in John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world, he doesn't mean God loved, so loved the rebellious, mm -hmm. sinful systems of the world. It's talking now about all God's human creatures. Whereas when we read um, in uh, John 12, 31, for example, now is the judgment of this world, now is the ruler of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Um, obviously, there's a different connotation there mm -hmm. to, to, to world. So we have to read it in terms of the, uh, the immediacy of the, the context. That's really important. Very quickly, just to 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 run with those two examples a second, um, you know, in John First John five nineteen, you know, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Is the apostle John trying to say in these passages that families, mm. uh, businesses, schools, uh, states, uh, all of these cultural institutions, creation itself? Mm that all of creation lies in the power and in the lap of mm. the evil one. Is subject to. And is subject mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. right? Is that what the Bible is trying to say there? And the mm -hmm. definitive answer, when you look at the context of any of these passages, is absolutely not. Mm -hmm. That's not is what is being said. In fact, the, the context in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world... What's the next ver uh, well, the next uh, sentence? Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Hmm. So, uh, first of all, that's critically important, is because we talked last week about that the the conversation in the wilderness is prior to the cross, it's prior to the resurrection, it's mm -hmm. prior to Pentecost. 
uh, it's prior even to the, of course, to the ascension of the Lord Jesus. It's prior to the Great Commission in, mm. in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. So that was one of the points we were trying to make, is that uh, any illegitimate claim to rule and authority, or even s- some tenuous legitimate claim because of the problem of sin and rebellion, and human beings being held captive to Satan uh, in their, the darkness of their minds and hearts, um, that has been overcome fundamentally, in principle, by the work, by the death, by the resurrection, by the ascension, by the session of the Lord Jesus Christ to the place of total power and total authority. And we pointed out there was actually God's law from Deuteronomy that Jesus uses to defeat the temptations of, of Satan. So when we, we read about the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, um, the, a, a, an, uh, an ethical current is what's being referred to there. The, the world or the age is one in which, in a given period, there is an ethical current that's hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. When it uses cosmos in this, in, or cosmos in this negative sense, this system, uh, an, an ordered system, this is the, the system that is in utter rebellion against God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not taught saying that every in- cultural institution and this, uh, or or or, or uh, every area of life, or creation itself, uh, is simply under the rule and authority of the devil. It goes back to the structure and direction issue we pointed out last right. week. So the Bible talks about these. These are analogous, in a sense, to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You've got the structures of creation, which the Bible declares good. God declares them to be good. And then you have the two directions, the polarity within creation, apostasy and obedience, mm. belief and unbelief, mm. um, faithfulness and rebellion. That's the direction. So any state, any family, any business, any church, in other words, the church itself in a given age can be in the grip of the evil one. Yeah. I drove past one on, on the way to church on Sunday where the rainbow flag is flying over a Lutheran church. Mm. Well, that's a church in the grip of the evil one. Does that mean... The totality of God's church is in the grip of the... No, it means that that particular local expression of an instituted church is in the grip, is in the grip of the... is lying in the lap of the evil one. It's controlled by the system of this world. Its ethical current is that of rebellion. So this is the structure and direction issue. So we can't use texts like that to say, well, the Bible says that the state or the culture or the business, or the family, or the economy, all of these things, that the cultural life is just in the lap of the wicked one. Right. No, it simply means that there are, there is a spirit at work in the children of disobedience, that's what Paul talks about, uh, where the devil who is a liar and the father of all lies, Jesus said, who is a deceiver, tries to twist and distort and lead people essentially to deify him, to to worship a system hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, not grounded in Christ. Paul talks about this even in philosophy with um, uh, worldly philosophies that aren't according to Christ, um, but are apostate. So this can be, um, uh, I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, where this this is the mind which sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we have to take every thought captive. So these are the systems Mm. of the world. Uh, the, uh, there can be an ethical current in any given age that is mm. dominated by this same spirit. 
But it does not mean, emphatically, it does not mean that the institutions of human society or that creation itself is somehow controlled by the devil. And any, any control that he did have, that he was permitted to have, was stripped from him in principle at the death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. All he is now is a liar and a deceiver who seeks to keep people in his grip. Mm-hmm. So um, the I hope that, that, that that's made that clear. When we look at those words, look at the context. The word world in the New Testament has generally taken on this negative tone mm-hmm. in, in many passages of a system or an ethical current in a given age or a given area that is dominated by hostility to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it has to be that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, <laughs> That's in, a major point, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in any human institution, in any family, in any church, in any state, there is going to be a pull in both directions. Right. right. And it's asserting the crown rights of Christ the King, who mm. is the one with all authority in heaven and earth, to, to assert those crown rights that is part of our task in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Mm. So is, this, uh, is it a similar kind of idea when, when the Lord says, you know, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that Absolutely. asks for a sign, yes. or he call, mm. calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, right. a generation of vipers. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Precisely. Right. And uh, the you know the we can't point to the church and say, well, there's an institution that isn't part that doesn't lie in the lap of the wicked one, because I've said no, there are plenty yeah. of parts of the church institute that do mm-hmm. lie in the lap of the of the wicked one. If right. they're caught up mm-hmm. in the system, the the. Uh, and they're adorning themselves with the ethics of the age that are not according to Christ. And so this is, of course, takes us back to Hebrews, where we see everything's been made subject to Christ, but we don't yet see it all in subjection, because this is the process hmm. of the building um, of the kingdom of God. Right. So um, uh, I think that's probably a helpful place to start, yeah. to have circled back around to that so that we can explain that point um, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, we can perhaps um, look at other elements from there. Right. I think it will be helpful for people because, I mean, how many of our listeners have come across someone who said, well, of course, things like sexual perversion and licentiousness and even faithlessness, they're on the rise because this present world is in the hands of the evil one. And, you know, right. one day Christ is coming and that will all change. But yep. we're to expect a, a, a culture in decline. Well, and, and, and absolutely, and yet if they just read the verse itself there in John 12, 31, where Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking about when he's lifted up at the cross, he's going to draw all people to himself. So um, it's, it's vital that we accurately understand the, those, uh, those passages mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and interpret them correctly. Paul talks in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So he's talking about the contrast there between those who've had their minds blinded, the unbelieving uh, age, the unbelieving, those who are in the grip of this ethical current, and those who have embraced the lordship of Jesus Christ, which he is proclaiming. Mm. Mm. So, Joe, as, as uh, you mentioned mm. earlier, there are two uh, related subjects here. Uh, there's the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world, 
as well as this question of the law of God and every every system has a law mm-hmm. but we are we've been we've been dealing with the question of theonomy and when when people use that term or hear that term they often think uh, as we've talked about that oh, you're trying to bring back you know, the the law of Moses you're trying mm-hmm. to uh, to reinstitute to bring people back under the yoke of the law mm. and I just I wonder we've talked about some of the uh, the New Testament passages where that's dealt with mm-hmm. and we were we were talking just a little bit earlier about uh, Acts 15 about the Jerusalem council mm-hmm. and the question about uh, about circumcision meat sacrifice to idols and so forth how how God's law or how Gentile believers are to adorn themselves under the uh, the law of God mm-hmm. so I wonder if you could take us there yeah well, that's another interesting um, uh, passage, and this has come up in some some of the questions and email communications that we've had. Um, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is sometimes used as a way of saying, well, uh, you see, the Jerusalem Council doesn't place the Gentiles mm-hmm. under uh, all of God's law. It just right. highlights a few things that they're to do. Uh, and therefore, um, we shouldn't expect that Gentiles, even, and this is the church, the Gentiles, even in the churches, are under the law of God. And um, actually, I think that's the exact opposite of what Acts 15 right. um, is right. actually teaching. Um, when you when you look at the, uh, the context in uh, Acts chapter 15, you'll notice that the issue, again, is this party of the Pharisees. Um, the, uh, the, the problem that... Um, uh, Paul deals with frequently in his letters, and a problem that's coming up again here is you've got Jews and Pharisees, you know, experts in the law, yep. who are being converted to Christianity. They're being converted to Christ, and they're seeing that Christ is the Messiah. And um, they, of course, as a community, the, those who are Jewish converts, are going to be wrestling with, well, what happens now to circumcision? Mm-hmm. What happens with some of our other feasts and our festivals and so on and so forth? And so, uh, and what should be the expectation of a church that is now made up of Jew and Gentile? And you've got all of these pagans who have been converted to Christ. They come into the church. Well, how are we to deal with them? How are we to, to treat them? What are our expectations of, um, of the Gentile Christians? Um, and so we have the, the famous Jerusalem Council, and Peter is, uh, stands up, and he is... Um, making them aware of fruitful evangelism amongst the uh, Gentiles, and he's also talking about the the stiff necks of the of their ancestors uh, and the the ceremonies and and um, rituals and requirements that that uh, that they were not able to bear. But he says very clearly in verse eleven, "We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are." So what the apostles are first emphasizing is that salvation is by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ for Jew and Gentile. We're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by keeping any ceremony or festival. We're not saved by any legal obedience. We are only saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, uh, it was important that there was this understanding that it was grace. It was, it was the grace of God. It was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the assembly, we're, we're told here in Acts, falls silent. And James uh, responds and he says, listen to me. And he talks about uh, Simeon, I'll quote now, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. There you go. Uh, and the words of the prophets agree with this. This is verse 16 of Acts 15. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does these things known from long ago. So here you have the reality of the covenant, the full intent of the covenant. Uh, a people being called out from amongst the Gentiles, and that is the rebuilding of David's fallen tent, right? Mm -hmm. this, is the, this is the kingdom of God. This is the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, rebuilding David's fallen tent so that all of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles called by his name. So, And they're all, they've, everyone, Jew and Gentile, must come in by grace through faith. And so the, the question then of... Uh, the, he doesn't want to cause difficulties among the Gentiles who turn to God. Uh, and so they don't want to say to them, right, you need to, because many of these, and in fact, probably most of these Jewish Christians would have been circumcising their children in the ordinary fashion and continuing many of these practices. Uh, but he says, we don't, instead, we should write to them, verse 20, so, to abstain from things polluted by idols. So that would be um, avoiding food sacrificed to idols from sexual immorality, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from blood. So, you know, if we're going to say that uh, this bit is binding, you know, how rare do we take our meat? Um, you know, how seriously do, uh, do we, as, do we as, as, as Gentiles take this anything strangled, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how many of us have eaten halal prepared food and so on, which is idolatrous, that's the Islamic form of food preparation, for since and this is critical in verse 21 for since ancient times Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city and every sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues so what um James is saying here what the at the council of Jerusalem is and Peter is saying is salvation is not by any of the practices that we of Jews uh, ceremonially have practiced circumcision or anything else. We know that there were problems with the, the Judaizers, the, the party of the Pharisees. It's by grace, it's through faith. And um, we need to remind the Gentiles to avoid sexual immorality. There's issues to do with food there and blood and food sacrificed to idols. And of course, this is just a summary of what was said. We don't know the totality of what James said. But then he says critically, for since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city. In other words, the law of Moses is known. Every city in where these churches are, Moses is proclaimed. Every Sabbath day is also read in the synagogues. So he's saying there isn't an ignorance of the law of Moses. Mm. Right? There's an awareness of the law of Moses in these cities. Um, and we don't want to put unnecessary burdens on the Gentiles. So he names a few things from the law in generalizations about food about sexual immorality but he doesn't mention perjury he doesn't mention blasphemy he doesn't mention bestiality which isn't mentioned anywhere in the newer testament only yeah. in the old testament so are we going to say well the only things that gentile that are from the law that apply to the gentiles are some, a few things about food and avoiding sexual immorality 
Is that really what we're we're saying? Um, and that that perjury and blasphemy and idolatry and uh, and and bestiality and 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 covetousness and all these things—that's all okay. That was okay for the Gentiles to do, because it's only those few things in verse twenty that James is concerned. Not at all. It's clear from the context that he's saying the mo- the law of Moses is preached in all the cities. Let's emphasize the salvation is only by grace. And let's not put the ceremonial burdens of circumcision and other such practices on the Gentiles. Uh, you can imagine what a barrier that would have been. If you're, a, if you're a male convert to Christianity as an adult in the first century and you want to become a Christian, and one of the requirements becomes circumcision. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty serious thing when you're an adult male. Mm-hmm. And that's a painful pr- procedure and one that in those days could have led to infection and all kinds of things. So... Um, it is obviously not the case that James is limiting the applicability of the law of God, because we see what Paul says about it shortly, um, to those few things. There's there's an emphasis on the fact that Moses is known in all the cities. Let's not put burdens of the, of the Pharisaic party of the Judaizers on the Gentiles as though they can't enter the church unless they're circumcised and so on. So that mm. passage mustn't be... Um, uh, misused. We have mm. to think of it in the broader context um, of uh, of the message of the New Testament about the law. Right. Well, and that should be helpful as well, because I mean, that's one of the number one texts used by someone with an antinomian perspective. And, you know, even people that say we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Of course, we've heard that before. And uh, just as an extension to, to what you've just shared, Joe, uh, Ryan, you mentioned earlier that we've received many emails uh, over the past week after our last podcast. And we, we, we really wanted to highlight one of them. Um, it was a very thoughtful email and uh, we wanted to interact with it for a little bit, but uh, the listener starts the email uh, quoting one of your uh, comments from last week, Joe, mm-hmm. but you asked the question, what is it about God's law that offends you? And, uh, you know, I've heard this in conversation as well from many throughout the past week, but this listener posits that it's the expectation that unbelievers are called to live according to it. And I'm going to go on and um, quote some of this listener's email. Uh, It says, it seems to me that this is the foundational issue. Believers realize that we are called to submit to God's law, but due to the varying influences Many are extremely reluctant about any ideas that would put unbelievers in any position that would necessitate that they live according to God's law unless they are willing to do so themselves. And then in the email, she goes on to describe a a hypothetical situation. We've often had this posed to us uh, at the ministry. Um, But she says, if this theonomic vision is for tomorrow, Mm -hmm. hypothetically, how is the theonomous lawmaker's method different from the coercive methods used by the current humanistic progressive religion that's given us what we now have a culture of death i'm not laying i'm still quoting from the email i'm not laying aside or devaluing the need for heart change in transforming culture i'm more asking on behalf of a hypothetical lawmaker going into the office tomorrow meaning he's both regenerate and properly catechized but now needs help to think christianly at the office is, so this is the question in all of that. Is enacting biblical laws in the face of opposition growing the kingdom by the sword? Mm-hmm. So I'd like to uh, um, 
touch my nose the long way around in answering that question um, mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by first setting up. I want to set up the question uh, a slightly further back. Sure. Uh, by talking about first whether or not we can truly understand, even as Christians, God's moral requirements mm-hmm. without uh, the revealed law. Because right. before we can even talk about how it might apply in the civil context mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what coercion around that might mean, um, when we, uh, because this is a, again a frequent sort of rebuttal when you talk about the importance of God's revealed law, is mm-hmm. well, you know, people have a general sense of what's mm-hmm. morally right and wrong, and they're they're going to be judged in accordance with that. Therefore, you don't need to enact anything that's remotely biblical in terms of legislation, mm-hmm. because um, there's a general sort of vague sense of what morality is, um, uh, natural law. And this is sufficient or this is adequate. Mm-hmm. And um, so in order to set up the answer to that, which we'll mm-hmm. come to very directly, mm-hmm. it's interesting that Paul, and we said that we would at least touch on Paul a bit this time, in Romans 7, beginning at verse 7, uh, talks about the way in which sin um, uses the law. Yeah. Um, and this is what he says. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. So several things are critically important in what Paul is saying there. First of all, the the law is holy, the commandment is holy, the commandment is just, the commandment is good. Period. Period. Um, And then he goes on, and he says uh, 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 critically in this passage, that I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. I would not have known sin, he says, were it not for the law. Now, he also makes clear here that the grace of the gospel applies only to people Mm -hmm. who are under this law of God. Mm-hmm. Because sin is lawlessness, mm-hmm. and if you're if you're not related to the law of God mm-hmm. as an unbeliever, how can you be a sinner? And if you're not a sinner, why would you need the grace of the gospel? Mm-hmm. So the point of the universal applicability of the law at the outset, from a Christian standpoint, theologically, is that the gospel only has something to say to those who recognize that they are under the law of God. So there is no gospel to preach if we don't realize that we're under God's law. This is the universal binding validity of the law of God. And because the gospel is proffered to all, to every creature, uh, the whole world is accountable to God. Paul says that, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world made accountable to God. So the very uh, uh, reality that the, the devil is the lawless one uh, antinomos and sin is lawlessness and that that puts us in need of the gospel and what christian would say that 
every unbeliever is not in need of the gospel. If we mm. say that every unbeliever is in need of the gospel, we're saying that every unbeliever is under the law. Uh, so that's the, I think that's the, uh, the uh, one of the first critical things we could say about that. Um, second of all, clearly the problem is not with God's law, but with sin. Mm-hmm. So when we when we when we when we're wrestling with the issue of God's law let's remember that the the challenges as it relates to God's law and our obedience is not a problem with God's holy just and righteous commandments it is with sin in our own hearts and within our own lives um and it's against this law that we are in uh, apostasy and rebellion that brings us into the judgment of God now um there's a religious relationship to God here then that Paul is identifying, and he talks about it in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. Now, we haven't to, to save time, let's not read Romans 1 right now. People can read that on their own time. But when you look at that passage, you see the fruit mm-hmm. of a culture right. living in terms of its own mind outside of the law of God. So those who think that, uh, you know, no pagan cultures generally, they recognize what was good and evil, right and wrong, and they were generally doing it, but it wasn't quite as accurate as the Hebrew version. Go and study the Greco-Roman world. Mm. Study mm. the Babylonian Empire. Look at the, the profligacy, the degeneracy of these cultures, and look at Romans 1 and see how Paul describes a culture that exchanges the truth about God for the lie, mm-hmm and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. When handed over, in other words, when God's common grace, you see, the only reason why, because of the doctrine of total depravity, because of sin, Paul describes it there in Romans 7, um, we we are lawless. And it's only God's common grace that restrains human beings from being as lawless as their nature would demand. Now, when God lets that mind go, Paul says, and, and, and leaves go, and, and that's a terrible judgment to be, to be um, handed over to that kind of depravity. That's what cultures produce. Mm-hmm. That's what they actually become. It's what actually right now in the West with our yes, abandonment of the gospel yeah. we're becoming. Mm-hmm. It mirrors our culture very closely right now, doesn't it? We're reverting, aren't mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. to that kind of Romans 1 culture. Mm-hmm. So we can say that as creatures, we stand in religious relationship to God. Human beings are aware of guilt and shame. We're aware of moral accountability. Uh, but pagan cultures are utterly morally bankrupt. And what Paul says actually in Romans 8, verse 7, about the, this mindset, this spirit of the world... He says, for the mindset of the flesh, the mindset of the flesh, and that's taken on a negative connotation there. Again, that's about the, the, the mind that is hostile to God, is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to what? God's law. Mm. It's hostile to God, Paul says, Romans 8, 7, because it does not submit itself to God's law. He goes on, it is unable to do so. Mm-hmm. So Paul goes so far as to say that the um, um, the mindset of the flesh, that is of apostasy of rebellion, is such that it does not willingly submit itself to God's law. It can't do so. Um, and uh, as a result, we have a, we, we, we will, we will, without the law of God, without the presence of the gospel and the teaching of God's word within a culture, we will run away into apostasy and rebellion because we will not willingly submit to that law. 
And this is what uh, I think many of, of course, the Two Kingdoms advocates mm. forget, is that we are, in Western culture, we're, we're 2,000 years into the dissemination of the Christian world and life view, of biblical teaching, of a biblical understanding of human identity and marriage and sexuality and even food preparation laws and, mm -hmm. and ideas of perjury and covetousness and the Lord's Day and idolatry and all of that. It's been taught for centuries. That is what accounts right now for the restraint that is that, that remains on our culture is our heritage. As that heritage is increasingly tossed aside, we see the Romans 1 mm -hmm. culture coming to bear. Now, some people will say, well, Joe, hang on a minute. What about Romans 2, where Paul speaks briefly about the... Um, those who sinned without the law, verse 12, perish without the law, and all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Now, this is an important text. Uh, the, to, uh, to, to notice because Paul is not saying here that the law of God is written in the hearts of the unbeliever in the way that it's written in the hearts of the believer. That's mm -hmm. the promise of the covenant in, Rome, in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. Mm -hmm. Can't possibly be that they've got a regenerate heart and that mm -hmm. the law of God has been inscribed into their very hearts. No, mm -hmm. what Paul is saying here is that by virtue of our religious relationship to God, and God's creation law, his laws and norms for every aspect of creation, which we can see in Psalm 19 as well, uh, that when Gentiles do things that approximate the law, right? Mm. That's the result, mm. of course, of God's uh, com common, grace common grace within a culture. Mm. And it's the result of the fact that man is in religious relation to God. They are showing that the work of the law is written on their hearts, that is, in their very being, in religious relationship to God, the work of the law, that is, the cause, the, the 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 structures of creation, we might call that system, the cosmo, the biblical cosmology, because we see it there in Psalm 19 as well, is a part of man's makeup. He cannot escape his religious relation to God. He can't escape it, and because um, of sin and rebellion, our consciences are seared. Right, we, we conscience is not a reliable guide. Paul is not saying, "Oh, they just need their conscience." That's it. Mm -hmm. Because of the fall, because of total depravity, consciences are seared, and so why God, would we send missionaries? Right? Precisely, <laughs> God's creation law for all of creation. We, we can say that when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit's at work, it commends itself. The Bible says to people's consciences mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they're God's creature. And there is a sense in every human being of God, the sensus divinitas, or whatever we would say there. There's a sense of God, um, and there's a sense of the, just as we have a, a sense of the, the, the juridical aspect of human life, and we have a sense of the faith aspect and so on, there's a moral sense too. And what's at the root of that moral sense? Well, um, the Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans 13. Um, uh, where he will we'll come to that in just a moment, where he talks about the, the 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 fullness of the meaning of God's law as love. So at the heart of the moral aspect of the norms, God's moral norms for the social order, are is uh, love to God and neighbor. Mm. That's in a sense the summary of the law. 
So in this religious relation to God, man knows he's accountable. He does have a sense of guilt and shame. But because of sin, because of a seared conscience, there was a necessity for God to republish his law. So it's not that there's the, the law is inscribed on the unbeliever's heart as desire and delight. It isn't. But the work of God's law in creation, including in man's own being, is known to man. So you have this, this uh, tension in Scripture where, we, where man knows God and he doesn't know God, where he knows God's, the work of God's law, but he doesn't know God's law. And both are true. There's a sense in which he knows God and a sense in which he doesn't know God. There's a sense in which he knows God's requirement and a sense in which he doesn't know God's requirement. So the notion that any unbeliever or uh, any culture can do without the revealed law of God is not taught in the Bible. Mm -hmm. It's simply not there. And you have a runaway pagan culture if you do not have the teaching of God's word. And as um, Paul makes uh, crystal clear there in um, Romans 7, um, sin is truly known and it comes alive in terms, and people are awakened to their need of the gospel, mm -hmm. in terms of the law of God itself when it's clearly presented and clearly taught. So God republishes his creation law in his inscripturated word. And that probably brings us tidily to... Uh, the, the sort of application question at mm -hmm. the end here. Right. Um, which again is which, one is, is posed to us so frequently, but I mean, if, if this, if this theonomic vision is, is established for tomorrow, uh, you know, is enacting biblical laws in the face of opposition, growing the kingdom by the sword, right? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. is coercion, right? This, yeah. this whole idea of coercion and is that what you're promoting? And, um, Joe, you've spoken about this at length, but laws being coercive by nature, and maybe that's a good place to start. Try yeah. to wrap up uh, this. Wrap up this podcast. Well, I think we're going to need a part three. I think we probably oh, think will so? need a part okay. three to so, do. Well, okay, I think so, we'll do a deep dive, some I, more deep I, dive into this. But I want to let me yeah. let me touch on it uh, uh, quickly because sure. we want to yeah. give some sense of satisfaction to the. Uh, uh, to the person who asked the question, right, but I yeah. think we can go deeper into this next week. We definitely do need a part three. No, I don't mean don't answer it. I just, <laughs> yeah, in sure. general, yes, <laughs> we, we certainly agree. Yeah. yeah, let's 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 come back to this. But the short answer is: Why should unbelievers obey God's law? Well, that's the question. Mm -hmm. And why would we be interested in even implementing God's law? Well, the, the simple answer is: God's law requires it. Mm -hmm. God's word requires it. So, first of all. Um, Exodus 12, 49, for example, makes clear that there is one law for the stranger and for the citizen. So those who were going to sojourn in Israel, it wasn't, oh, well, you can have your own Gentile law. You can have your own for the pagan. You can have a different law. No, there was one law for the homeland member, for the citizen, and for the stranger, the sojourner. And that actually became part of the foundation of the Western legal tradition. And our whole idea of the rule of law was that there is one law for the stranger and the one law for the covenant member and for the non-covenant member. So it goes right back there to Exodus 12, uh, 49. And then um, I, I, I absolutely have to read this text. I don't know why it's so often overlooked, but in 1 Timothy 1, and this comes back to the, the whole idea of the civil use of the law, which Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, Paul says specifically that the law was made for the unrighteous. 
So the reason it's for the unbeliever is that it was made for the unrighteous. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 8. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. That word legit, lawfully, right? Mm-hmm. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on, and note this, based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. So Paul relates relates their ties together, law and gospel, and he tells us that the law, here is a juridical uh, application of the law, that it's made for violators of the Decalogue here murderers, Mm. perjurers, and so on. This is why God's law ended up right at the heart of the Western legal tradition. It's why the law hung on all of our crown, on the walls of our crown courts. It's why Moses is inscribed into the wall of the Supreme Court building in the United States. It's why the early legal codes in the colonies were drawn straight out of the word of God. It's why right back as far as Alfred the Great, you have the beginnings of the the, uh, English common law tradition uh, in the Ten Commandments. And uh, this, this aspect is totally central. It was made for the unrighteous. Then you could look at prophetic literature. So you've got Isaiah 42, for example, Isaiah 42, 4, where we're reminded that the coastlands, the Gentile nations, wait for his law. So the, and we talked last week about Deuteronomy 4 and the other nations looking at and observing the nation of Israel and seeing the model and then wanting to copy it. Um, and I think it comes back in part to this question of the the requirement to love our neighbor, which is right there in 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 Romans thirteen uh, eight through ten. Um, and uh, <clears throat> people often forget that uh, you know you shall love your neighbor as yourself is first found or it, it's cited in the law of God. For example, in Leviticus nineteen eighteen, Leviticus nineteen eighteen, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And how does Paul in Romans 13, 8 through 10 summarize that? Maybe Nathan, you could help us with that. Sure. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Right. So if we love our neighbor Mm -hmm. and we care about our neighbor, Mm -hmm. we will want God's law to be obeyed in human society. If Mm -hmm. we hate our neighbor and we we don't want their blessing, but we want uh, them to be cursed, Mm -hmm. Deuteronomy 27, 28, blessing or cursing. Mm -hmm. If we want our neighbors cursed, we want our society cursed. Well, let's forget God's law and abandon God's law and never try and bring it to bear in human society. If we love our neighbor, if we love God, which is a summation of the law, mm-hmm. then we will want to see God's law, the principles of God's law, the precepts of God's law, concretized, positivized for our uh, culture and our society, appropriately, properly interpreted, positivized appropriately in our society, if we care at all about our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And if we care about our children, if we care about uh, human society at all. So in the end, it comes down to the demand, the, the demand of Psalm 2, 
where God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy mountain, and he commands the kings and the judges to kiss the son, lest he be angry and they perish in the way. Christ is king. Submit yourself to him. It's not a democracy. God doesn't say, you know, if you vote for him, please, would you be concerned about the lordship of my son and his law? No, he, sa- his, he says, be, be warned, mm-hmm. judges, rulers of the earth, submit yourself, kiss the son, fall on your face before him, submit to him. So, and this is, of course, coercive because it's, it's God. God. The only one who has the right to coerce creatures is the living God. Yeah. Any, and we'll come back to this next, next week, but any office that we might occupy as a magistrate or as a politician or as a legislator or whatever is an office under God with a limited jurisdiction and a limited sovereignty mm. um, that is subject to the sovereignty of God. We have no legitimate authority over anybody unless it's derived from God in terms of an office. So the choice, choice is very simple. You're either coerced by pagan law, by humanistic law. You want to be coerced by Sharia law? You want to be coerced by Marxist law? You want Bill C-4? Mm. Bill 67? Bill Bill 11? Do we want coercion by hatred that brings a curse on the nation? Or do we want God's law of liberty, as James calls it, or God's law of love, as Paul calls it, uh, applied to our social order and i think what we can do next week as we come back to this is get into the concrete details of what would that mean what would that look like what do we mean when we talk about positivizing god's law yeah when we look at the decalogue and the case law how do we understand that in terms of its application and um what about things like the lord's day and these kinds of concrete questions and we can talk a bit more about this question of coercion because all law by its very nature is coercive it's not it's not suggestions it's not just a recommendation Law is both precept and sanction, and that's why it's law. And so the very nature of the of the state in terms of civil law as well um, and constitutional law is coercive. So we can come back to that subject, discuss it some more, so we have a more detailed understanding of what we mean when we're saying, what does it mean to love the law of God for the blessing of the nations and of our neighbor? Yeah, and law is, law is inescapable. Like you were... Uh, Bob Dylan sang it. You started your uh, your short uh, monograph uh, for <laughs> mission with this line that you got to serve somebody. Mm-hmm. It may be right. the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, that's a good place to maybe let our listeners know that uh, Joe's book, Ruler of Kings, is in-house. We've got tons and tons of copies now uh, here at our study center. That's so, right. Thanks for your patience, everyone. Mm-hmm. So if, if you want to uh, order a copy, go to our website and uh, EzraPress.ca, and we can send that out right away. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Joe, thanks for uh, taking us through that. We will pick up this conversation on law, kingdom, world uh, next week. We remind you that uh, from him and through him and to him, that's Jesus Christ, are all things. To God be the glory. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation. We'll see you next week.